Hi, I'm Dr. Amy Robbins, and welcome to Life, Death, and the Space Between podcast. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist and medium, and here we explore life, death, consciousness, and what it all means. Lionel Friedberg is an Emmy Award-winning film and TV producer and writer. Lionel grew up in South Africa and began his career at the first TV station in Central Africa in northern Rhodesia, now Zambia, in 1961. He worked as the director of photography on 18 feature films and wrote, produced, and directed the National Geographic, PBS, and national broadcast and cable networks, including the Discovery Channel, A&E, and the History Channel. He is also a New York Times bestselling author. His current book, Forever in My Veins, is out now. He is based in Los Angeles, California. Welcome, Lionel. Hi, Amy. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's great to be with you. Hi, I've been much more purposeful this year about trying to curate content that goes together. And in February, and maybe bleeding into March a little bit, we're going to be talking about healing. So spontaneous healing, epigenetics, some African healing rituals, and just different ways to think about how you heal. So if you haven't subscribed to my podcast yet, please do so. You can just subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. Also, you can sign up for my newsletter and course, my program that's coming up. Both of those you can do on my website at dramyrobbins.com. And don't forget to follow me on social, on Instagram, also at Dr. Amy Robbins. I love hearing from you all, hearing how the podcast is opening you up, helping you shift and change your thoughts about things and your life. So check me out in any of those places. And here is today's podcast. So tell us a little about your journey, because you really have had a miraculous journey of predictions, of premonitions that sort of came true throughout the course of your life based on your experience with a shaman in Africa, correct? Right. I don't want to sound boastful or arrogant about this, but really my life has kind of been almost on a level of Indiana Jones in many ways because of the variety of things that I've done, you know, as a documentary filmmaker, been all over the world. Um, but really, um, the roots of where I come from and my background is, is, is totally rooted in Africa. And although I've worked uh, in, in many other parts of the world, it's the, it's the African story of my life that that's remains with me. And this is where I get the title, you know, for my book, Forever in My Veins. The essence of the continent still pulses very much within me. And um, extraordinary things happened because um, when I was living in what used to be northern Rhodesia, which is today the Republic of Zambia, as you, as you said earlier in your introduction, um, it was at the time that the country just became independent. Prior to that, it was a British colony. And I was working at this television station. It was my first job. And, you know, we had wonderful programming. We had educational broadcasts in the morning in vernacular languages for the local tribe, tribal children in, in living in the bush. And then, and then a cultural programming in the afternoon. 
afternoon for various tribal groups, drumming and dancing in the studio. And at night, you know, we'd have Leave It to Beaver and Bonanza and, and, mm-hmm. and, and all that stuff for white audiences who worked in the copper mines in that area. But when the country became independent, the station was nationalized by the government. They took over the station. It was originally privately owned. And, you know, we weren't surprised. We were all expecting this. And so one day we all got a pink slip. We were thanked very much for our years of service, but thanks, guys, you've got to leave. Your jobs are going to be taken over by local people. And I was kind of traumatized. I didn't know what to do. What I always wanted to do was to end up in Hollywood, in, 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 in here where I live now, and make movies. Uh, you know, but at that time, how on earth do I did, could I do that? I was young. I was like what, twenty-two years old, um, and uh, how did I? How how would I do this? So I was really very, very much in a dilemma as to what to do with myself. Now we had an amazing guy, a young uh, black guy, of course, who worked for us at home. I was living with my parents. Uh, I'm an only child, and. Um, my father moved up there to get away from the apartheid system in South Africa. So although my childhood was spent in South Africa, you know, my, my career began here in Central Africa. And I, when, I, when I was told that I had to leave the station, I didn't know what to do. So I went to this, this young guy who worked for us. He was a member of the Bemba ethnic group. His name was David, David Free. And I said to him, David, I've just been fired because my job's going to be taken on by, by one of you guys. And I don't know what to do. And he said, oh, um, would you go back to South Africa? And I had thought about that. But because of the apartheid system, I wasn't really keen to do that. South Africa had a, a quite a thriving film industry at that time anyway. Um, so I said, I have no idea what to do. Really, what I want to do is to, you know, eventually go abroad. And he said, well, let me see if I can find someone who can help you make your mind up as to what you really should do with your life. And I said, you know, like who, like what? And he said, just leave it to me. And he came back a couple of days later and he said, I have found someone and we're going to see her on whatever day it was. Let's say it was the Thursday. We're going to see her. And I thought, I, I trusted the guy implicitly. I had no idea what to expect. And there we are driving into the bush in my little secondhand little VW Beetle that <laughs> I owned at the time into a tiny little village on the outskirts of a town called Ndola and in one of the houses on the edge of this place um, uh, lived a, a little old woman. And that's where we went. David took me to meet this little old woman who lived in this house all by herself on the edge of this village. And when she you was, say house, my guess is it's not a house like we're no, thinking ab- about. Ab- no, it's not your Western style house. It's basically, you know, two or three rooms at the most. It's kind of like a, a, a glorified hut, a large hut. With, yeah, you know, separate rooms in it. Um, anyway, this woman meets us at the door and she was very, very old and withered. And, you know, I could see her eyes. She was almost half blind. And um, she was an albino, which, which meant that she had a, a pigment problem. So her skin was more white than black. Um, that does happen occasionally. And anyway, so she was living all alone in this house and she welcomed us in. She didn't speak any English. I had no idea what to expect or who David had brought me to see or what was going to happen. She welcomed us into her, uh, this one rather large room and on the floor was a grass mat and a little bag. And on the, on the shelves around the room were little 
items, trinkets, bits and pieces of, you know, um, pebbles and feathers and animal skins and powders and herbs and whatever else. So I could see that obviously she was some kind of an herbal doctor. I guess what we whites would have called in back in those days, you know, a witch doctor. Mm-hmm. So I knew that that's probably, you know, what was going to happen here today. And she told us to sit on the floor, which uh, we did. David sitting next to me, he was going to translate what she was going to tell me. And she t- took the, this little bag, told me to blow into it, say my name. And then she sprinkled a bit of snuff into it, which is ground uh, up uh, tobacco leaves as an offering to her ancestors. Because the paradigm that is used by these shamans in Africa is always the medium is always through the ancestors. Whether you're diagnosing an illness or foretelling the future or whatever it is, or communicating with a, a dead member of a family, it's always done by communicating through the ancestors mm. and the bones are the tools that she uses to do that. Because the, 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 the paradigm is this, when she throws the bones on the grass mat, the patient, me, or whoever has come to see her for consultation, the ancestor of that person or my ancestors influence the way the bones and stones fall on the mat. Now, when I say bones, I'm talking wow. about little, little tiny bones, you know, little, ankle, little knuckle bones from a goat, a crocodile, a, uh, a lion, a hyena, a whole variety of things. And um, it was absolutely fascinating. And she leaned over and she started to, you know, touch these items lying on the floor. And she, the minute she, she started to do that, she suddenly pulled back as though she saw something bright or very frightening. And she pulled back and she said to, she clapped her hands and she said to David, what are, I can't see anything. What are these bright lights in my eyes? And David says to me, you know, she wants to know what these bright lights are that she's seeing. The minute I heard that, I knew that I had better pay attention to what this little old lady was going to say, because what she was seeing clearly was the, the lights in the studio where I worked at the television station. And she didn't know anything about that. And so she started to give these predictions and these pronouncements about my life endlessly, like an, a tirade of events that would occur in my life. Now, I was there for help as to what I should do with my, you know, right now. What should I do? What choice should I make right now? The only thing that made any sense to me was she said to David, he's going to cross. And, you know, remember, this is a little old woman who probably had never been more than 10 miles away from where she was born. Mm-hmm. You lived in the bush. And Zambia is a landlocked country. There's no ocean there. So she says to, to David, she says, he will cross the big water, the big water, and he will go into that direction. And she points towards the north. He will go in that direction above the big water to where there are more lights. And there he will work with people who are very famous. I didn't know what she was talking about, but I'm hearing all of this. I'm trying to keep notes, and David is trying as hard as he can to keep pace with her. She tells me so many things, and over the next six decades, it's unbelievable. So many of those, and she was speaking in riddles to me. I didn't even understand what she was talking about. I don't even know if she herself recognized or understood what she was seeing, but she was describing what she was seeing. Events, places, geography, um, moments in my life that I don't know if she made a sense out of all of them, but she described what she was seeing in these, in the, in the bones. 
every single thing that she said came true. She even actually told me, she said, well, the, some of the definite things that, that I understood right away was, she said, you will have two wives. You will be married two times. She told me how many children I would have. All of that came to pass over the next six decades. So let me give you one example of the things that she said, you know, these predictions. Can I, about, can I get her phone number? <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the, the tragedy of it all is that this, this, this little old woman had had such an influence in my life and, and is the basis of, of the, the through line of my book. And I don't even know her name, you know. I never even knew what her name was. You know? Wow. Um, and so this idea about you know, crossing the big water, I did go back to South Africa because I had no option. I worked in the film industry and then I emigrated to North America. And in those days, we're talking about the year 1966, most people went by sea. You, you, you went by ship, not mm. by air, right? We're talking about the mid-60s now. And halfway on the journey from Cape Town to Southampton, which was the halfway point before I took the ship across the Atlantic uh, to North America, I was on deck of the ship one night, you know, looking at the stars every night. And the stars were changing. Every single night I noticed that the, the pattern of stars were changing. I, I felt as though I was going from one hemisphere to the other. I was crossing the planet from south to north. I became deeply aware of that fact just by seeing the sky. And one night I looked back and I saw the Southern Cross, which is kind of a, 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 a very recognizable in the sky, kind of like the Big Dipper is here in the Northern mm. Hemisphere. Mm -hmm. And every night it was getting lower and lower and lower in the sky. And it hit me suddenly. That was the very first time I, I, I recognized an event that this woman had predicted. I am crossing the big water. I'm going to the north, which is exactly what I was doing. And I was aware of this happening. From that moment onwards, I never, I could never, you know, expect events that she had predicted to take place. But as they did take place over the years, I recognized what she had told me. And so many things occurred over the years, the ensuing years, were exactly as she had described. And I can go on and on and go on and give you many, many examples of those. Yeah, I would love to hear, I know you talk about some of these, but I'd love to hear some of the examples because I'm just thinking, Yeah, you know, when we think about like, do we, is the, do we co-create our reality, you know, with the universe? Like, did she tell you those, these things and then you and knew and you're happen. subconscious, yeah. you, you know, yeah. so you create them or yeah. do, were they, I mean, it's so fascinating. It is. And that's, and I, and I hear you entirely because most people say, oh, that's what happened. But they weren't like that at all because she predicted things that were so weird and so strange that there's no way that I could have invented them to make the glass slipper fit the, the ugly sister's foot, you know, kind of thing. Right. They just happened. And as they did, I recognized them as to what she had predicted. And I'll give you a couple of examples. Uh, she said, be very, very careful of the great beast because it may kill you in the bush one day. Be very careful. Well, in 1967, I was assigned to a group of uh, white hunters who came out to Mozambique, which is a country right next door to South Africa. At that time, Portuguese territory. Now it's independent, of course. In those days, uh, it was a huge place where big white hunters would come and shoot wild animals for fun. I never understood 
the idea and why people ever got any kicks out of killing innocent wild animals. I, I couldn't even read that part of the book. It was like no, so... You know, well, you know, that's how I felt. It was absolutely, it, none of it, it was awful. And that's why I took the assignment because I wanted to find out why particularly wealthy people, you know, and these well-funded safaris, what is the fun of killing wild animals and then getting drunk at night? What is it all about? That's why I took the job. And, you know, uh, there was an incident there with a herd of elephants where a hunter shot at a herd of elephants to try and kill a bull and missed. And then there was a cow, a female elephant, who had a, a calf, a baby with her. The whole herd dispersed immediately, but she wanted to charge the man who had, shot, who had shot at the bull elephant because she knew her baby could have been in trouble. And he was in front of me. I had a shot. I was standing right behind him with my camera. He was in front of me. The elephants were in the background. And she started running towards him, in other words, towards me with my camera. And I'm carrying a big, heavy motion picture camera, film, heavy. You know, right. And I've got a guy next to me carrying this huge battery. Not an iPhone. Uh, not an iPhone. No, no. I mean, you know, we're talking, you know, heavy cameras thing. I was rooted to the spot, not so much because the camera was heavy, but I was petrified because all that was happening in my viewfinder was this animal was getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger in my frame. And then the hunter ran out of shot. And about as the this cow, this elephant was about six to eight feet away from me. The, the white hunter, the, the guy who led the safari, the, uh, who was based you know, at this hunting concession, he shot her. Um, because if he, had, if he did not, she would have run straight into me. Right. I don't think she was charging me. She was charging the hunter, but he ran away. So she just carried on going. And of course, she would have hit me. She would have killed me. She collapsed. She fell on her forelegs and she killed over. Her eyes glazed over. An incredible thing happened. Her spirit and mine, I know for a fact, made a connection. And we have been connected ever since. But I won't even get into that because that's another whole aspect of my story. Maybe we could record a part two. We can certainly do that <laughs> because I'd love to tell you about that because it has been absolutely amazing. And how so many shamans who go by the name of Sangoma, by the way, in South Africa, they've read the bones for me many, many times. And they've always detected the presence of an elephant around me, always. Because mm. I know that, that the spirit of that elephant has been with me. Nevertheless, she died. And um, it, for me, it was a, an absolutely traumatic experience. Oh, it's, I mean, I can... I can't even imagine. And they're my so, favorite animals. Yeah. Oh, no, no. I mean, you know, uh, and that night we're back at base camp and, uh, you know, everybody, the, 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 the booze is pouring uh, and you know, flowing and everybody's processing the day. And I was sitting in a corner, you know, maybe nurturing a little beer or something like that. And I was thinking back, I could have been killed today. Um, and then again, I, my, my immediate thoughts went back to that woman. Beware of the great beast in the bush, you could get killed. That's exactly what happened today. I'll give you another example. Let's fast forward to the year 1991. One of the things that she told me, she said to David, she said, one day he will go to a world, a world that is white. There is no color in this world. Everything is white, no color. I had no idea what she was talking about. So 1991, I was working for a, on, on a science series for PBS here in the States, and it was a scientific expedition to Antarctica 
to, to determine whether the ozone hole was you know, still a problem, whether climate change was a reality, is, are the oceans getting more acidic? If you want to put a, a thermometer into the mouth of Mother Earth and, and test her health, you go to the Antarctic because it's fairly pristine. There are no cities and freeways and all that, right? So are, is human influence and the, and the environment changing? You go to Antarctica, that's where you see the changes. Is it affecting the biomass? It is, is it affecting the ecosystem there? Is, is the ice really melting? Are the glaciers really melting? Um, is the temperature of the earth going up? Is there more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere now than there was a hundred years ago, because you can determine that by digging ice cores. You know, so this ah. is what, what, what we were doing there. It was a science show for, for, for PBS called The Infinite Voyage. It was a wonderful series that I uh, was very privileged to work on. And uh, it was actually Christmas Eve, 1991. Now we're in the Southern Hemisphere and it's December. So the sun never set, there was perpetual daylight because you're so far South. And right about midnight, I decided to go up on deck of this icebreaking, this icebreaker ship, this research ship, and just give, keep my notes up to date. I keep copious notes and I keep diaries and I keep notes of everything, always. Um, so I went up there to do that and it was kind of chilly, but okay, you know, I'd had a few drinks downstairs with the crew and the, and the staff and the scientists, but I went upstairs, I was the only one on deck. And I looked around and there was a little penguin on one of the, uh, on the ice. Now there is no ocean. It's completely covered by pack ice. And it was like being in a big translucent egg because the sea was white, solid white. The sky was white and you couldn't even see where the horizon met the ocean. It was like being in this big white bubble. Hmm. And I was sitting there and I was trying to describe it. And as I was writing this down, again, it hit me you will go to a world where is, there is no color. It is all white. I had just written those lines. And decades earlier, this ancient little woman in her hut in Africa had seen it. You know, so that's another example of one of those things that came to pass. You know, um, one of the most amazing stories that she told me was the fact that, you know, she said to me, again, you know, through David, through the interpreter, he will one day meet a man who was very close to the most evil man who ever lived. I had no idea what that even inferred. What on earth could she be talking about? So in, I'm gonna backtrack in time to the year 1983. I was working on a series of documentary films on the history of South African Airways, which was a very, very fine international airline at the time. And it was celebrating its 50th anniversary. And I had the task of doing a television series about that and a documentary to show on board the aircraft, you know, as an in-flight thing. And um, when we did our research, you know, looking back in time to the beginning of the airline, we discovered, we, we, we learned that, that in 1934, the airline had ordered from a factory in Germany, an airplane manufacturing company, some new aircraft. Uh, you know, at that time they were the latest and the best of everything. They only sat 14 people, but they were the latest airplanes available and um, metal skinned as opposed to the old canvas, you know, fuselages of earlier airplanes and was a big deal. So to fly those aircraft all the way from the factory in Germany, all the way down to South Africa, to Johannesburg, took two weeks. Remember, it's the early 30s. There are no weather forecasting facilities. There are no alternative airports. How do you get fuel? You know, all that stuff. It was a major deal. 
And one of the pilots we learned who was on the ferry flight of one of these aircraft, a German guy, a pilot by the name of Hans Bauer, was still alive. And I thought, wow, we've got to interview him and put him in the show. You know, we've got mm-hmm. to interview him for the documentary. Where is he? You know, uh, so we had a great research division headed by my, my dearest friend, Esme uh, Jacobson, who was my head researcher. And we found out uh, that he had retired. He was in his late 80s, old guy. Um, but he had retired to a little village not far from Munich in Bavaria. And we have also discovered that not only that, but that he had actually shot a home movie. He was a, he was a very avid cinematographer, a movie maker in his spare time. And he had done a movie about this delivery flight. So I thought, that is incredible. Does he have that film? So anyway, it turns out that the film that he shot on that delivery flight was in a lab in Frankfurt, and he was living in Munich. And so they were both available to us. So the German government very kindly facilitated the, for us to go and meet this guy and interview him. Now, this is before uh, West Germany and East Germany combined. The Berlin Wall hadn't come down yet. So the German government was based in, in Bonn, not in Berlin. And when, when I was in Frankfurt and, and choosing the aspects of this film that we found, in, you know, that we had discovered in this lab in Frankfurt, we were met by this man, what we call the man from Bonn, uh, who really was there to facilitate the interview with Hans Bauer. And uh, we got ready to actually go down, uh, travel all the way from Frankfurt to Munich to interview him. My crew, a public relations crew, this man from Bonn, from the foreign office, and, you know, a few other people. And comes the time for us to go down to Munich. And it's very easy to get from Frankfurt to Munich because it's a dead straight autobahn all the way. You know, those German autobahns are amazing. No speed limit, you know, and on and on. And the night before we were due to do the interview, we stayed at a little motel, hotel, near this, this guy Hans Bauer's house in a place called Amasi. And the man from Bonn um, spoke perfect English, and he was going to be my translator for the interview. And he came very, he kept sidling up to me that night, and he said, you know, how much do you really know about this guy Hans Bauer? And I, you know, I said, well, all I know is that he, he was on the delivery flight and on, and, you know, that's, that's, that's all I know. What else is there to know about him? He said, well, you know, he has a war record. So I said, well, I'm sure, you know, if he did, had delivered those airplanes in the early 30s during the war, he must have been a pilot. Uh, why? Well, that's not what I'm interested in. And he leaned forward and he said to me, do you realize, do you know that he was actually the personal pilot of Adolf Hitler? Oh, my gosh. Can you imagine how... I, we had had a lot of wine to drink that night, but I sobered up instantly like that. How am I going to handle this one? I'd interviewed a lot of people in my time under all kinds of circumstances, but this was different to anything I'd ever encountered before. How am I going to do this? I was very nervous about how I would handle him and deal with him the next day when we met him. Anyway, we eventually turned up at his house the next day. His wife, his third wife, he'd been married three times. She welcomed us at the door, uh, showed us into the, this little picture book house, very small little house, you know, with you know, neat little garden outside. And uh, he eventually, Hans Bar, comes down the staircase with a cane. Uh, he had a, a gummy leg, uh, which apparently was a war wound. He'd got, he'd received a, 
he's an injury during the war. I didn't want to ask about any of that stuff. I mean, they really, that wasn't to do with what we were there for. I wanted to know about this delivery flight down Africa. It was all about that. Anyway, I meet him and the minute I shook his hand, uh, something inside me said, do you realize that how many times has that hand shaken the hand of Adolf Hitler? Mm-hmm. Talk about six degrees of separation. You are one degree of separation from the greatest tyrant and mass murderer who ever lived. This is the hand, the hand that you're shaking. Wow. I, I did not feel any animosity towards the guy. I viewed him only as a pilot. I was only interested in that delivery flight. And he was absolutely charming. We did the interview. He answered my questions in German. The man from Bonn was my translator. Um, and uh, at the end of the interview, which took about an hour, I knew I was going to get about 10 to 15 minutes of good screen time with him. Um, I said, thank you very much. We're now finished. We're done. And I told the crew, okay, let's you know wrap it all up. The lights, the microphones, the cables, da da da, and he said to me, Hans Bauer gets up from his from from where he was sitting, and he took to me around the corner of the living room, which sort of went to a little alcove where there where there was a bathroom, and he points to a, a photograph on the wall, and it's him in his uniform as a pilot, with Adolf Hitler, in front of one of the aircraft of the same type that we've been talking about in the interview. That's why he showed me the picture because he said, yeah, you know, das ist ein, pointing to towards the airplane. That's what we've been talking about. You know, I had enough knowledge of German to understand it, but I couldn't converse with the guy. I mean, you know, uh, so I said, yeah, yeah, very interesting. And then he looks at me and he points towards Hitler and he said, you want to know about him? And I said, yes, please, you know. And he invites me to go and sit down on the couch in the living room he asked his wife to bring some uh, um, Schlibberwitz and Kirschwein, good German liquor. The rest of the crew were asked to, and, and she laid out a spread for everybody to eat. And he and I are sitting on the couch. She brings his photograph albums to him, all beautifully leather bound. And he starts showing me his photograph albums, which basically was an insight into the inner workings of all of those henchmen who constituted the Third Reich, Goebbels and Boring and Hitler and you name it. And there are pictures of Hitler sitting at a state dinner with Mussolini. And always in the background is Hans Bauer, because Bauer tells me that he and Adolf Hitler were friends from before the war started. Adolf Hitler gave him his first wedding party in Adolf Hitler's apartment in Munich. They were very, very close buddies, if you like. You know, Hitler trusted nobody during the war. All of his close associates, the inner rankings of the Third Reich, you know, he always thought that his life was in danger. And of course, there were many attempts on his life. As we now know, historically, there were many attempts on his life. But the only person he really ever confided in was this guy, Hans Bauer. He told Hans Bauer everything. And Bauer tells me how close they were, how Hitler confided in him, how he often went to Berchtesgaden, which was Hitler's house in the countryside with Eva Braun. Uh, and there are photographs to prove all that. And he's showing me all of this. And I'm looking at all of this and I'm feeling no animosity towards the man. He's just sharing his life with me. But it's his life with Adolf Hitler, you know? 
Um, That's pre- that had been predicted by a woman well, in a hut but, in Africa. But but I I wasn't even thinking about that because that hadn't hit me yet. I was so enthralled by what was happening to me at that with this experience that that didn't even enter my mind until the end of the day when we were finished and you know we'd all wrapped up. We were back in the vehicles. There were two vehicles, I think, and, and vans, and I was in the second one. And as we drove away from the house, I looked back, you know, waved back because he was standing outside the house with his wife, and they were waving goodbye to us. And as we turned the corner and he disappeared, at that moment it hit me. I suddenly realized, do you realize you have just spent a day with a man who was as close as anyone could ever be to one of the most evil tyrants who ever lived? And that old lady predicted it all those years ago. You will meet a man who knew the most evil man who ever lived. Once again, I was astounded uh, to be aware of the fact that this woman had foreseen this event. And, you know, on and on as the years unfolded, these things happened. But I've just given you a couple of the highlights, a few, oh my a few God. examples. I mean, your stories are captivating. I could listen to you all day. Are there more events that have been predicted that have not happened yet for you that you are I, aware of? I, 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 I'd, I'd like to answer that, but I, I don't know of anything that hasn't happened because I don't remember. And if it does happen, I will probably recognize it or remember it from what she said. But, but here's the thing. What happened to me not very long ago is one of the, one of the biggest things that, that, that always nagged me at the back of my mind that she did predict. She said to me, and she said, well, she said to David, she said, one day he's going to get very, very sick. He will become very, very sick. And the only way he's going to be able to heal himself is to go back to the place where he came from. Those were her words. And I never really knew what that meant. Until in the late 90s, I was working on uh, a series of shows called Mysteries of the Bible or Histories Mysteries with uh, Leonard Nimoy. Uh, it was either for A&E or the History Channel. And one day I was, I was diagnosed uh, with, a, with a very, very serious autoimmune disorder. My kidneys were failing big time. My immune system was trying to basically destroy my kidneys. Now, you know, medicine, the medical fraternity have no understanding of, of, of the mechanism, how this works and why it happens. You know, my nephrologist said to me, I had a biopsy and he said, both your kidneys, they're both, they're both, got, they're both failing. You will be on dialysis within 10 years and you may not survive this illness. It's that serious. Um, we have no idea what caused it. And he said to me, did you ever, you know, um, get stung by an, an insect or uh, any venomous bite or anything like that. I said, sure, of course, all those things happened to me. My, my, my early career, a lot of my life was spent in Africa. All those things happened to me. I swam in dirty waters and dirty rivers. You know, I even smoked elephant dung once when I was in the bush mm-hmm. because I ran out of tobacco and the, a guy rolled me a joint made out of elephant dung wrapped in leaves. <laughs> You know, that's how crazy young guys are, right? So I said, yeah, of course, all of those things happen because my nephrologist said, whatever is causing your illness may have been remained latent in your system all these years and has only been triggered now by some event or another. We don't understand it, but you're in serious trouble. I didn't know what to do, but they put me on immunosuppressants and it was a regime that was pretty brutal. 
I mean, I was really having a tough time. Think of think of chemotherapy on 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 steroids. It was like really heavy duty stuff that I was on, and um, I had I realized when that happened that that's the illness that this woman predicted. This is the serious illness that she said would happen to me. And that's what I'm still dealing with right now. But here's what's so interesting. When she told me the only way he would be able to heal himself, and listen, I live in LA. I have access to some of the greatest doctors and nephrologists and whatever else in the world in this town. And I did have some really amazing doctors. I still do. I'm very fortunate. But you know what really I think got me through this illness because they predicted I'd be on dialysis years ago? I'm not. Because the old lady has said to me, he must go back where he came from. What I did was I went back to South Africa with a friend of mine who's also a, a white guy. He's a general surgeon. He studies the ways of the shamans in South Africa in order to understand how they... Um, prepare medication for their, their clients. These, these, these sangomas, which is what they're called, dispense what they call muti. Muti is the, the African word for medicine. And they make it themselves, these, these sangomas, out of leaves and barks and herbs and grasses and whatever else. And, you know, they make it themselves. And they, they, they diagnose an illness by looking at the bones. And then they tell the patient, drink this or use this in a bath of, as a ritual, bathe in the stuff. You will be you will be cured and dave my friend who's who's the surgeon he was studying this the system and he said to me you've been diagnosed with this uh nephrotic syndrome that you've got it's 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 a serious deal i'm going back to south africa to study um with my teacher in, in a place called swaziland which is right next door to south africa why don't you come with me maybe he can help you find a way through some sort of medicinal plants or whatever else that, that there are available in South Africa. I said, Dave, you must be kidding. I've got access to the best medication in the world here and the best um, um, doctors in the world. You're a general surgeon. You want me to go back and go and consult someone who lives in a mud hut in the bush to get me better? And he said, yes, that's exactly what I'm telling you to do. And I said, okay. And I did. And I went back with him. And I met this, this was, this was, the, this was the first guy that... Um, read my bones and he said yeah you're very ill you need to get a femba that's the word he used i looked at dave dave looked at me i thought oh, oh what's that turns out that what he was referring to was basically a kind of exorcism to rid my body of this negative energy or whatever it was that was inhabiting me that was destroying my kidneys i needed a ceremony done to get rid of that. And he arranged it at another village with another, what he said was a far more powerful Sangoma. And I went and I had this ceremony, this ritual done on me, which was a terrifying experience because the man who did it was almost possessed, almost taken over by this, by the, by the spirit of, 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 of some kind of wild animal. When I, when he, when he came into the hut where I was sitting, waiting for him to arrive to do this cleansing ceremony on me. He, he reminded me more of a hyena than, than a person. He went down on all fours and he came crawling up towards me and he started smelling my body all the way from my feet right up to my, my torso. And when he got to my kidneys, he started to retch, he started to vomit. 
and he vomited this vile slime into a bucket as though he had taken my illness and got rid of it by vomiting it out. And then he did the same thing on the other side of my body. Um, and, you know, this, was, this went on for a couple of hours in this, in this hut. Uh, women were sitting around us drumming and they were trilling and the drumming was going, it was straight out of a movie. And um, at the end of the evening, he got up and he looked down at me and he said, you are now clear of the bad stuff that was inside you. And now what you must do is you must make contact with your ancestors and I, you must get yourself a special stick to walk with and think of your grandfather from your father's side and he will always protect you and keep the illness away from you. This is what he says to me. You know, I, I, I was given a stick like that carved out of a local tree, a branch of a tree. And whenever I go anywhere now, if I go and walk in the Mojave Desert or wherever I go, I take the stick with me as though I'm taking my grandfather for a walk and he's protecting me because, you know, my illness has now gone into remission. I should have been on dialysis or dead ages ago and I'm not. Now, is it because of that experience? I don't know, but I am absolutely convinced it had a lot to do with it. Wow. And... You know, the, the extraordinary thing is that also in the 70s, you know, let me just tell you another amazing thing. And that is, I told you the story of that elephant um, and that I felt connected to her. During the 70s, I made a television series for a television in South Africa called The Tribal Identity, which was a, an ethnographic series that looked at all the tribal groups in South Africa, the cultures, the histories, the ritualistic practices, the spiritual beliefs of the different tribes who live in South Africa. And by the way, South Africa has many different tribal groups. There are 11 official languages in South Africa, but all, of course, most people speak English. Um, and during the course of the making of that series, I had an anthropologist by the name of Peter Becker, an amazing guy who had been studying African culture for years. And he had a great respect for African traditions and culture. And he said, you're going to meet amazing people during the making of the series. And I did. And every time we met a shaman, a sangoma, we met many of them. At the end of, you know, the filming sequence, I would always say, please, you know, would you throw the bones? Would you read my bones? You know, if there was time, you know, if there was still time enough for them to do that. And invariably, when they threw the bones for me, they would say, what is this Ndlovu that is with you? And Ndlovu is a Zulu word for elephant hmm. what is this elephant that is with you it's as though the spirit of that animal has been with me ever since that incident when she was killed in front of me she's been with me she and i are kind of she's been taking care of me and i think that's also part of my healing process because they've seen it in the bones you know i have to tell you you know look i've made films you know with Princeton University, the Monroe Institute of Virginia with NASA. I'd done shows for National Geographic on all kinds of topics. I've done a lot of science shows, but nothing compares to the awe and the wonder and the mystery that I really don't understand of all of those experiences that I've had with those shamans in Africa. It has been an amazing journey. And 
my book talks about a lot of the other things that I've done with my life. And I have to say that I, I don't want to sound arrogant about this and I really don't mean to boast, but I really have, I've been blessed with a, an amazingly interesting and fascinating life. I've met extraordinary people. I, I mean, I'm sitting here like my mouth is like open because I think you, you just have amazing stories to tell. But, you know, so the glue that holds all of it together, and I tell a lot of these stories, you know, one of the, and I even tell the story of the Voyager's mission from Earth to Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. I did a show about that. And all those engineers and all those wonderful astronomers and all those amazing people at the Jet Propulsion Lab here at Pasadena at Caltech and NASA, you know, I mean, it's great stuff, but nothing all of it pales compared to what I have experienced in Africa. And so the glue that holds my whole memoir together, all of these stories that I tell in this book, is the through line of that old woman and her predictions and what all came to pass exactly as she had foreseen it all of those years ago. It has been unbelievable. Well, Lionel, thank you so much for sharing your life with us today. I mean, it was it it really is honestly mind blowing what you had predicted and what you've experienced. If people are interested in your book, can you tell us where they can find it and where they can find you? Yeah. I'm assuming they can Google you and everything that you've produced over the years will show up. <laughs> Yeah, uh, but I do have a website. It's it's my name, Lionel Friedberg, L-I-O-N-E-L-F-R-I-E-D-B-E-R-G, LionelFriedberg.com. That's my website. They can go there. They can read an excerpt from the book on my website. Uh, and on my website, they can also go to an, uh, to, to, to buy the book. Or it's, it's right now, it's on Amazon.com. And, and it's on Barnes and Noble, uh, um, their online store. And if any bookstores that are open under these rather awful pandemic conditions, if there are any bookstores that are open, they can order it from their local bookstore, or it may be on on the shelf already. So it's available now. And uh, but Amazon uh, Amazon has it. And uh, again, it's forever in my veins. And 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 the name really reflects. What, 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 what is so truthful about my life, the essence and the mystery of what I've experienced and, and encountered during my years, 60 years making documentary films, is still, is still within my blood. But it's essentially based in the mystery and the magic of, of that African background. Mm -hmm. And that's what flows in my blood. And that's basically what the title refers to. Amazing. And I think a lot of people will get, um, I think a lot of people will, will, will find hope for their own lives there because, you know, I've, I've encountered lots of, I mean, you know, just in having this illness that I've dealt with. Um, we need, we need, we need, we, we're living in pretty dark times. You know, we've gone through a really, really tough time and the world is in trouble. The economy is in a mess. We've got pandemic and all that. People need hope and we need to realize that there is a light at the end of every tunnel. And I totally believe that. And that's the message of my book. And I think that all of us, we're all of us, whether we're human or animal or vegetable or whatever, we're, there is a connection that binds us all on a cosmic level. And I want people to sense that because there is always hope and there is always more outside one's little own tiny little box that we live in. You know, mm. there is so much more. That's what I've learned. And I wanted to share that with people. Thank you for your beautiful message. I know my listeners are going to love this podcast as much as I loved listening to you. So I'm excited to share it with them. Thank you so much, Lionel. 
Oh, thank you, Amy. And thank you so much for having me today on your, on your show today. I appreciate it so much. Of course. <laughs> like what you heard today and want to hear more? Wondering what comes next and what it all means? Head over to Apple Podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts and hit subscribe. Also, if you could take a minute to rate and review my podcast, I would really appreciate it. Stay tuned as we continue to explore life, death, and the space between.